Part Three of Part Fourth of Trilby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Trilby by George Du Maurier. Part Fourth. Part Three. The other letter was from Trilby, in her bold, careless handwriting that sprawled all over the page and her occasionally imperfect spelling. It ran thus. My dear, dear Taffy, this is to say good-bye. I'm going away to put an end to all this misery, for which nobody's to blame but myself. The very moment after I'd said yes to little Billy, I knew perfectly well what a stupid fool I was, and I've been ashamed of myself ever since. I had a miserable week, I can tell you. I knew how it would all turn out. I am dreadfully unhappy, but not half so unhappy as if I married him, and he were ever to regret it and be ashamed of me. And of course he would, really, even if he didn't show it, good and kind as he is, an angel. Besides, of course I could never be a lady. How could I? though I ought to have been one, I suppose. But everything seems to have gone wrong with me, though I never found it out before, and it can't be righted. Poor Papa! I am going away with Chanot. I've been neglecting him shamefully. I mean to make up for it all now. You mustn't try and find out where I'm going. I know you won't, if I beg you, nor anyone else. It would make everything so much harder for me. Angèle knows. She has promised me not to tell. I should like to have a line from you very much. If you send it to her, she will send it on to me. Dear Taffy, next to little Billy, I love you and the laird better than anyone else in the whole world. I've never known real happiness till I met you. You have changed me into another person. You and Sandy and little Billy. Oh, it has been a jolly time, though it didn't last long. It will have to do for me for life. So good-bye. I shall never, never forget, and remain with dearest love, your ever-faithful and most affectionate friend. Trilby O'Farrell P.S. When it has all blown over and settled again, if it ever does, I shall come back to Paris, perhaps, and see you again some day. The good Taffy pondered deeply over this letter, read it half a dozen times at least, and then he kissed it, and put it back into its envelope, and locked it up. He knew what very deep anguish underlay the somewhat trivial expression of her sorrow. He guessed how Trollby, so childishly impulsive and demonstrative, in the ordinary intercourse of friendship, would be more reticent than most women in such a case as this. He wrote to her warmly, affectionately, at great length, and sent the letter as she had told him. The laird also wrote a long letter full of tenderly worded friendship and sincere regard. Both expressed their hope and belief that they would soon see her again, when the first bitterness of her grief would be over, and that the old pleasant relations would be renewed. And then, feeling wretched, 
they went and silently lunched together at the Café de l'Odéon, where the omelettes were good and the wine wasn't blue. Late that evening they sat together in the studio, reading. They found they could not talk to each other very readily without little Billy to listen. Three's company sometimes, and two's none. Suddenly there was a tremendous getting up in the dark stairs outside in a violent hurry, and little Billy burst into the room like a small whirlwind, haggard, out of breath, almost speechless at first with excitement. Trilby, where is she? What's become of her? She's run away. Oh, she's written me such a letter. We were to have been married at the embassy. My mother, she's been meddling. And that cursed old ass, that beast, my uncle. They've been here. I know all about it. Why didn't you stick up for her? I did, as well as I could. Sandy couldn't stand it, and cut. You stuck up for her. You, why, you agreed with my mother that she oughtn't to marry me. You, you false friend, you! Why, she's an angel, far too good for the likes of me. You know she is. As, as for her social position and all that, what degrading rot! Her father was as much a gentleman as mine. Besides, what the devil do I care for her father? It's her I want. Her, 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 I tell you. I can't live without her. I must have her back. I must have her back. Do you hear? We were to have lived together at Barbizon all our lives, and I was to have painted stunning pictures like those other fellows there. Who cares for their social position, I should like to know? Or that of their wives? Damn social position! We've often said so, over and over again. An artist's life should be away from the world, above all that meanness and paltriness, all in his work. Social position, indeed! Over and over again we've said what fitted, bestial rot it all was, a thing to make one sick and shut oneself away from the world. Why say one thing and act another? Love comes before all, love levels all, love, and art, and beauty. Before such beauty as Trilby's, rank doesn't exist. Such rank as mine, too. Good God, I'll never paint another stroke till I've got her back. Never Never, never, I tell you. I can't. I won't. And so the poor boy went on, cheering and raving about in his rampage, knocking over chairs and easels, stammering and shrieking, mad with excitement. They tried to reason with him, to make him listen, to point out that it was not her social position alone that unfitted her to be his wife and the mother of his children, etc., it was no good. He grew more and more uncontrollable, became almost unintelligible. He stammered, so, a pitiable sight and pitiable to hear. Oh, oh, good heavens! Are you so precious immaculate, you two, that you should throw stones at poor Trilby? What a shame, what a hideous shame it is, that there should be one law for the woman and another for the man. Poor weak women! Poor, soft, affectionate things that beasts of men are always running after, and pestering, and ruining, and trampling underfoot. Oh, oh, it makes me sick, it makes me sick! And finally he gasped and screamed, 
and fell down in a fit on the floor. The doctor was sent for. Taffy went in a cab to the Hôtel de Lille et d'Albion to fetch his mother, and poor little Billy, quite unconscious, was undressed by Sandy and Madame Vinard, and put into the laird's bed. The doctor came, and not long after, Mrs. Bagot and her daughter. It was a serious case. Another doctor was called in. Beds were got and made up in the studio for the two grief-stricken ladies, and thus closed the eve of what was to have been poor little Billy's wedding day, it seems. Little Billy's attack appears to have been a kind of epileptic seizure. It ended in brain fever and other complications. A long and tedious illness. It was many weeks before he was out of danger, and his convalescence was long and tedious, too. His nature seemed changed. He lay languid and listless, never even mentioned Trilby, except once to ask if she had come back, and if anyone knew where she was, and if she had been written to. She had not, it appears. Mrs. Bagot had thought it was better not, and Taffy and the laird agreed with her that no good could come of writing. Mrs. Bagot felt bitterly against the woman who had been the cause of all this trouble, and bitterly against herself for her injustice. It was an unhappy time for everybody. There was more unhappiness still to come. One day in February, Madame Angelboise called on Taffy and the laird in the temporary studio where they worked. She was in terrible tribulation. Trilby's little brother had died of scarlet fever, and was buried, and Trilby had left her hiding-place the day after the funeral, and have never come back, and this was a week ago. She and Jeannot had been living at a village called Fibray, in La Sarthe, lodging with some poor people she knew, she washing and working with her needle till her brother fell ill. She had never left his bedside for a moment, night or day and when he died her grief was so terrible that people thought she would go out of her mind, and the day after he was buried she was not to be found anywhere. She had disappeared, taking nothing with her, not even her clothes, simply vanished and left no sign, no message of any kind. All the ponds had been searched, all the wells, and the small stream that flows through Vibray and the old forest. Taffy went to Vibray, cross-examined everybody he could, communicated with the Paris police, but with no result, and every afternoon, with a beating heart, he went to the morgue. The news was, of course, kept from little Billy. There was no difficulty about this. He never asked a question, hardly ever spoke. When he first got up and was carried into the studio, he asked for his picture, the picture goes to the well, and looked at it for a while, and then shrugged his shoulders and laughed, a miserable sort of laugh, painful to hear and see, the laugh of a cold old man who laughs so as not to cry. Then he looked at his mother and sister, and saw the sad havoc that grief and anxiety had wrought in them. It seemed to him, as in a bad dream, that he had been mad for many years, a cause of endless sickening terror 
and distress, and that his poor weak wandering wits had come back at last, bringing in their train cruel remorse and the remembrance of all the patient love and kindness that had been lavished on him for many, many years. His sweet sister, his dear long-suffering mother, what had really happened to make them look like this? And taking them both in his feeble arms, he fell a-weeping, quite desperately, and for a long time. And when his weeping fit was over, when he had quite wept himself out, he fell asleep. And when he awoke, he was conscious that another sad thing had happened to him, and that for some mysterious cause his power of loving had not come back with his wandering wits, had been left behind, and it seemed to him that it was gone forever and ever, would never come back again, not even his love for his mother and sister, not even his love for Trilby, where all that had once been was a void, a gap, a blankness. Truly, if Trilby had suffered much, she had also been the innocent cause of terrible suffering. Poor Mrs. Bagot, in her heart, could not forgive her. I feel this is getting to be quite a sad story, and that it is high time to cut this part of it short. As the warmer weather came and little Billy got stronger, the studio became more lively. The ladies' beds were removed to another studio on the next landing, which was vacant, and the friends came to see little Billy, and made life more easy for him and his mother and sister. As for Taffy and the laird, they had already long been to Mrs. Buggo as a pair of crutches, without whose invaluable help she could never have held herself upright to pick her way in all this maze of trouble. Then Mr. Carroll came every day to chat with his favorite pupil, and gladdened Mrs. Bagot's heart, and also Durien, Carnegie, Petroli Coconos, Vincent, Anthony, Lorimer, Dodor, and Zuzu. Mrs. Bagot thought the last two irresistible, when she had once been satisfied that they were gentlemen, in spite of appearances. And, indeed, they showed themselves to great advantage. And though they were so much the opposite to little Billy in everything, she felt almost maternal towards them, and gave them innocent, good, motherly advice, which they swallowed avec attendrissement, not even stealing a look at each other. And they held Mrs. Bagot's wool, and listened to Mrs. Bagot's sacred music, with upturned pious eyes, and mealy mouths that butter wouldn't melt in. It is good to be a soldier, and a detrimental. You touch the hearts of women, and charm them old and young, high or low, excepting perhaps a few worldly mothers of marriageable daughters. They take the sticking of your tongue in the cheek for the wearing of your heart on the sleeve. Indeed, good women all over the world, and ever since it began, have loved to be bamboozled by these genial, roistering daredevils, who haven't got a penny to bless themselves with, which is so touching, and are supposed to carry their lives in their hands, even in piping times of peace. Nay, even a few rare bad women sometimes, such women as the best and wisest of us, are often ready to sell our souls for. A lightsome eye, a soldier's mean, a feather of the blue, 
A doublet of the Lincoln green, No more of me you knew, My love, no more of me you knew, As if that wasn't enough and to spare. Little Billy could hardly realize that these two polite and gentle and sympathetic sons of Mars were the lively Griggs who had made themselves so pleasant all round. And in such a singular manner, on the top of that St. Cloud omnibus, and he admired how they had added hypocrisy to their other crimes. Svengali had gone back to Germany, it seemed, with his pockets full of Napoleons and big Havana cigars, and wrapped in an immense fur-lined coat, which he meant to wear all through the summer. But little Gecko often came with his violin and made lovely music, and that seemed to do little Billy more good than anything else. It made him realize, in his brain, all the love he could no longer feel in his heart. The sweet melodic phrase, rendered by a master, was as wholesome refreshing balm to him while it lasted, as manna in the wilderness. It was the one good thing within his reach, never to be taken from him as long as his eardrums remained, and he could hear a master play. Poor Gecko treated the two English ladies, the Bao, as if they had been goddesses, even when they accompanied him on the piano. He begged their pardon for every wrong note they struck, and adopted their tenpi, that is the proper technical term, I believe, and turned scherzos and allegretos into funeral dirges to please them, and agreed with them, poor little traitor, that it all sounded much better like that. Oh, Beethoven, oh, Mozart, did you turn in your graves? Then one fine afternoon, little Billy was taken for drives to the Bois de Boulogne with his mother and sister in an open fly, and generally taffy as a fourth, to Passy, Auteuil, Boulogne, Saint-Cloud, Meudon. There are many charming places within an easy drive of Paris. And sometimes Taffy or the Laird would escort Mrs. and Miss Bagot to the Luxembourg Gallery, the Louvre, the Palais Royal, to the Comédie Française once or twice, and on Sundays now and then, to the English Chapel in the Rue de Marbeuf. It was all very pleasant, and Mrs. Baggett looks back on the days of her brother's convalescence as among the happiest in her life. And they would all five dine together in the studio, with Madame Vinard to wait, and her mother, a cordon bleu, for cook. And the whole aspect of the place was changed and made fragrant, sweet and charming by all this new feminine invasion and occupation. And what is sweeter to watch than the dawn and growth of love's young dream, when strength and beauty meet together by the couch of a beloved invalid? Of course the sympathetic reader will foresee how readily the stalwart Taffy fell a victim to the charms of his friend's sweet sister, and how she grew to return his more than brotherly regard, and how, one lovely evening, just as March was going out like a lamb, to make room for the first of April, little Billy joined their hands together, and gave them his brotherly blessing. As a matter of fact, however, nothing of this kind happened. Nothing ever happens but the unforeseen. Pazienza! 
Then, at length, one day, it was a fine sunny showery day in April, by the by, and the big studio window was open at the top and let in a pleasant breeze from the northwest. Just as when our little story began, a railway omnibus drew up at the porte cochere in the Place Saint-Anatole des Arts and carried away to the station of the Chemin de Père du Nord. Little Billy and his mother and sister, and all their belongings, the famous picture had gone before, and Taffy and the Laird rode with them, their faces very long, to see the last of the dear people, and of the train that was to bear them away from Paris, and little Billy, with his quick, prehensile, aesthetic eye, took many a long and wistful parting gaze at many a French thing he loved, from the grey towers of Notre-Dame downward. Heaven only knew when he might see them again. So he tried to get their aspect well by heart, that he might have the better store of beloved shape and colour memories, to chew the cud of, when his lost powers of loving and remembering clearly should come back, and he lay awake at night and listened to the wash of the Atlantic along the beautiful red sandstone coast at home. He had a faint hope that he should feel sorry at parting with Taffy and the Laird. But when the time came for saying good-bye, he couldn't feel sorry in the least, for all he tried and strained so hard. So he thanked them so earnestly and profusely for all their kindness and patience and sympathy, as did also his mother and sister, that their hearts were too full to speak, and their manner was quite gruff. It was a way they had when they were deeply moved and didn't want to show it. And as he gazed out of the carriage window at their two forlorn figures looking after him when the train steamed out of the station, his sorrow at not feeling sorry made him look so haggard and so woe-begun that they could scarcely bear the sight of him departing without them, and almost felt as if they must follow by the next train, and go and cheer him up in Devonshire, and themselves too. They did not yield to this amiable weakness. Sorrowfully, arm in arm, with trailing umbrellas, they recrossed the river, and found their way to the Café de l'Odéon where they ate many omelettes in silence, and dejectedly drank of the best they could get, and were very sad indeed. Nearly five years have elapsed since we bade farewell and au revoir to Taffy and the Laird at the Paris station of the Chemin de Père du Nord, and wished little Billy and his mother and sister Godspeed on their way to Devonshire, where the poor sufferer was to rest and lie fallow for a few months and recruit his lost strength and energy, that he might follow up his first and well-deserved success, which, perhaps, contributed just a little to his recovery. Many of my readers will remember his splendid debut at the Royal Academy in Trafalgar Square, with that now-so-famous canvas, The Pitcher Goes to the Well, and how it was sold three times over on the morning of the private view, the third time for a thousand pounds, just five times what he got it for himself. And that was thought a large sum in those days, for a beginner's picture two feet by four. I am well aware that such a vulgar test is no criterion whatever for a picture's real merit, 
but this picture is well known to all the world by this time, and sold only last year at Christie's, more than thirty-six years after it was painted, for three thousand pounds. Thirty-six years! That goes a long way to redeem even three thousand pounds of all their cumulative vulgarity. The picture is now in the National Gallery, with that other canvas by the same hand, the moon dial. There they hang together for all who care to see them, his first and his last, the blossom and the fruit. He had not long to live himself, and it was his good fortune, so rare among those whose work is probably destined to live forever, that he succeeded at his first go-off. And his success was of the best and most flattering kind. It began high up, where it should, among the masters of his own craft. But his fame filtered quickly down to those immediately beneath, and through these to wider circles, and there was quite enough of opposition and vilification and coarse abuse of him to clear it of any suspicion of cheapness or evanescence. What better antiseptic can there be than the Philistine's deep hate? What sweeter, fresher, whole summer music than the sound of his voice when he doth so furiously rage? Yes, that is good production, as Vingali would have said. C'est un cri du coeur. And then, when the popular acclaim brings the great dealers and the big checks, up rises the printed howl of the duffer, the disappointed one, the wounded thing with an angry cry, the prosperous and happy bagman that should have been, who has given up all for his art, and finds he can't paint and make himself a name after all, and never will, so falls to writing about those who can, and what writing! To write in hissing dispraise of our more successful fellow-craftsmen, and of those who admire him, that is not a clean or pretty trade. It seems, alas, an easy one, and it gives pleasure to so many. It does not even want good grammar, but it pays, well enough even to start and run a magazine with, instead of scholarship and taste and talent, humor, sense, wit, and wisdom. It is something like the purveying of pornographic pictures. Some of us look at them and laugh, and even buy. To be a purchaser is bad enough, but to be a purveyor thereof, ah! Oh. A poor devil of a cracked soprano. Are there such people still? who has been turned out of the Pope's choir because he can't sing in tune, after all. Think of him yelling and squeaking his treble rage at Stanley, Sims Reeves, La Blache. Poor lost beardless nondescript, why not fly to other climes where at least thou mightst hide from us thy woeful crack, and keep thy miserable secret to thyself? Are there no harm still left in Stamboul? For the likes of thee to sweep and clean, no women's beds to make, and slops to empty, and doors and windows to bar, and tails to carry, and the pasha's confidence and favor and protection to win? Even that is a better trade than pandering for hire to the basest instinct of all. The dirty pleasure we feel, some of us, 
in seeing mud and dead cats and rotten eggs flung at those we cannot but admire and secretly envy all of which eloquence means that little billy was pitched into right and left as well as over priest and it all rolled off him like water of a dog's back both praise and blame it was a happy summer for mrs baggett a sweet compensation for all the anguish of the winter that had gone before with her two beloved children together under her wing and all the world for her ringing with praise of her boy the apple of her eye so providentially rescued from the very jaws of death and from other dangers almost as terrible to her fiercely jealous maternal heart and his affection for her seemed to grow with his returning health but alas he was never again to be quite the same light-hearted innocent expansive lad he had been before that fatal year spent in paris one chapter of his life was closed never to be reopened never to be spoken of again by him to her by her to him she could neither forgive nor forget she could but be silent otherwise he was pleasant and sweet to live with and everything was done to make his life at home as sweet and pleasant as a loving mother could as could a most charming sister and others sisters who were charming too and much disposed to worship at the shrine of this young celebrity who woke up one morning in their little village to find himself famous and bore his blushing honours so meekly and among them the vicar's daughter his sister's friend and co-teacher at the sunday school a simple pure and pious maiden of gentle birth everything he once thought a young lady should be and her name it was alice and she was sweet and her hair was brown as brown and if he no longer found the simple country pleasures the junketings and picnics the garden parties and innocent little musical evenings quite so exciting as of old he never showed it indeed there was much that he did not show and that his mother and sister tried in vain to guess many things and among them one thing that constantly preoccupied and distressed him the numbness of his affections he could be as easily demonstrative to his mother and sister as though nothing had ever happened to him from the mere force of a sweet old habit even more so out of sheer gratitude and compunction but alas he felt that in his heart he could no longer care for them in the least nor for taffy nor the laird nor for himself not even for trilby of whom he constantly thought but without emotion and of whose strange disappearance he had been told and the story had been confirmed in all its details by angele boise to whom he had written it was as though some part of his brain where his affections were seated had been paralyzed while all the rest of it was as keen and as active as ever he felt like some poor life bird or beast or reptile a part of whose cerebrum or cerebellum or whatever it is 
had been dug out by the vivisector for experimental purposes, and the strongest emotional feeling he seemed capable of was his anxiety and alarm about this curious symptom, and his concern as to whether he ought to mention it or not. He did not do so, for fear of causing distress, hoping that it would pass away in time, and redoubled his caresses to his mother and sister, and clung to them more than ever, and became more considerate of others in thought and manner, word and deed, than he had ever been before, as though by constantly assuming the virtue he had no longer, he would gradually coax it back again. There was no trouble he would not take to give pleasure to the humblest. Also, his vanity about himself had become as nothing, and he missed it almost as much as his affection. Yet he told himself over and over again that he was a great artist, and that he would spare no pains to make himself a greater, but that was no merit of its own. Two plus two equals four. Also two times two equals four. That peculiarity was no reason why four should be conceited. For what was four but a result either way? Well, he was like four, just an inevitable result of circumstances over which he had no control, a mere product or sum, and though he meant to make himself as big as a four as he could, to cultivate his peculiar fourness, he could no longer feel the old conceit and self-complacency, and they had been a joy, and it was hard to do without them. At the bottom of it all was a vague, disquieting unhappiness, a constant fidget. And it seemed to him, and much to his distress, that such mild unhappiness would be the greatest he could ever feel henceforward, but that, such as it was, it would never leave him, and that his moral existence would be forevermore one long grey gloomy blank, the glimmer of twilight, never glad, confident morning again. So much for little Billy's convalescence. Then one day, in the late autumn, he spread his wings and flew away to London, which was very ready, with open arms, to welcome William Baggett, the already famous painter, alias Little Billy. End of Part 4 Recording by J.C. Guan, Montreal, July 2010